I think for me, I became a filmmaker because I loved watching films. And I was fascinated by just the experience of being an audience member in a theater, laughing with other people, getting scared with other people. And when I realized that, you know, for the most part, uh, what the actors were doing and saying was not improvised, I became fascinated with the writing component of it. And really, you know, all my friends, we grew up in a small New England town, small town Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, pretty boring. It's not Boston. And uh, it's a safe, fun, you know, place to be, like, a lot of natural beauty, a lot of, you know, a nice lake, natural resources and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, especially as you enter your teenage years, uh, you can kind of fall into one or a few of kind of set paths or categories. One is to go uh, explore drinking and drugs in the woods and to kill time. One is to uh, pursue academic endeavors and dive into tons of extracurriculars in hopes of, you know, uh, competing with other people getting into the best college or whatever. Um, the last one that thankfully a lot of people in my town opted for, uh, you know, with kind of a smattering of some of the other ones, uh, was to pursue creative things. So there were a lot of musicians, not a lot of filmmakers because, you know, dating myself, this was a time when this, it was like the high eight, uh, video cameras, so the quality was pretty poor. But we would make films for school projects, and that was sort of our foray into an interest in figuring out how they were made, how they were constructed, turned into a pursuit of uh, filmmaking by way of um, film school. And then eventually, after um, writing tons of scripts that just sat on the shelf, deciding, you know what, um, only being a writer, maybe isn't enough and I want to see if I can figure out how to take one of these and uh, realize it to uh, its fullest potential based on whatever I'm able to put into it. Yeah, um, Langston, I really appreciate you doing this. You're going to add a lot of uh, gravitas to the scene. So. Yeah, no problem. Oh, uh, quick question. How do you feel about your actors going off page, you know, if inspiration strikes? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a blank slate. All right, okay, ready? Get set. All right, we are settle and action. Your name is Liza, and you're going to call me Alan. Whatever. Okay, and your thing is that, like, you want to have a baby. You want to have a kid. Okay, Liza? I want some damn kids, Alan. When are you going to give me them kids? was good. Um, well, the thing is, Liza, is that, you know, I have a plan for my life and <clears throat> I have a plan for our life together. And kids, they don't, you know, they don't fit into that. Excuse me, would you be interested in a display of mind-melting mystical magic? Get lost, fag. Well, perhaps then I can suspend your disbelief as well as your bigotry. <laughs> Come on, babe, let's just see a trick. Bet your tricks suck anyway. You won't jump. Leave me alone, man. You strike me as the kind of guy who never follows through with anything. Am I right? You don't know me. Leave me alone. 
Yeah, I don't know if I can do that. You've added too much excitement to my morning. What do you want? I just want to help. Don't try to talk me out of it. No, no. I wouldn't think of it. Death. There's one decision we have a say in. Ought to be that. Prior to making my first feature, Mr. Misfortune, I shot a number of shorts, and the last one I shot specifically as sort of um, almost like a case study in production methodology. So uh, it was shot similarly to how your interviews are, are shot. Um, we had uh, myself shooting, we had a dedicated sound person, and we had sort of a um, data wrangler grip uh, AC kind of hybrid utility person on set. And that was enough when we were dealing, that is pretty much, it, it allows you to be nimble. You can move quickly. We were able to do two company moves in a single day because everyone fit into one car, including, you know, with all the equipment. Um, and what I learned from that experience was, uh, you know, or the idea that it, it presented to me was, you know, it would be feasible to shoot a feature using the same methodology, but just with more intricate planning and, and scheduling. Um, and potentially, you know, a larger cast, maybe a few more locations. So when it was time to graduate from uh, shorts to a feature, um, I approached it the same way. I actually used the templates that I had for the call sheets and for the schedule. I just duplicated them, wiped all the data. You know, it's like Google Sheets or you can use Excel or whatever, but really it comes down to um, be prepared to spend a lot of time staring at spreadsheets and wondering why the data won't change the harder you stare at it, uh, no matter how much you wish it would, because um, your limitations and constraints are going to be consistent no matter what. But uh, Really, it's just figuring out how to efficiently plan your days, how many pages you think you can get through per day, accounting for how many people are on set, how many locations you might try to um, uh, shoot at, how many scenes you think you can get through, breaking for lunch, like all the, all the logistical aspects really uh, surface there and, and are, are critical. Um, and you also have to leave room, you have to leave a margin of error for food doesn't show up on time. Um, we had, you know, electricity go out, uh, all kinds of things can happen. So, um, really it's kind of, it's, it's almost the same as shooting a short, just with more days. 15,000 unmarked small bills, Memorial Park, down the trail that starts after the last bench, lower clearing, Saturday. Midnight alone. So when you're making your first feature, your goal is really to get the movie in the can. When the emphasis is on that objective singularly, you are willing to make compromises that, you know, you might not want to make, but you might not have uh, full confidence that you'd be able to complete the film without cutting, not really cutting corners necessarily, but making sacrifices. And I think there's a distinction. So cutting corners, you know, really is not being thorough when it comes to safety or not uh, making sure that there's enough food for everyone who's going to be on set. And sometimes that has to happen. If you don't have the money, but you want to make sure everyone is fed, 
I think that the the big compromises uh, that I experienced in in making Mr. Misfortune were imposed by myself and involved um, kind of tapering the humor element and tapering the action element uh, because when you're dealing with cast and especially on, on low budget independent features, you know, you have to be mindful too that if someone gets another gig that's going to pay more, they're obligated to take it because they've got to make a living. So you have to really try to uh, shoot people out quickly uh, so that even if um, there isn't a conflict in terms of when they can shoot, there could be um, like hair and wardrobe fittings and maybe they want them to shave their beard or dye their hair or um, get a you know, henna tattoo or something that, that's going to conflict with what you've established in your film and create continuity problems. So um, the real challenge between shooting a short and shooting a feature uh, for me came down to um, maximizing what I, balancing out, like shooting out the locations because, uh, you know, for instance, we had a couple scenes that were at, at the house that we paid to use. Um, I could have spread that out over multiple days, but each day would have accounted for a 10% increase in the overall budget, uh, which, you know, could have, considering that I was balancing a day job with uh, the filmmaking could have worked, but also I didn't know this is not a standing set. This is someone's home. So if they refurnished it, if they painted their walls, like, you know, you could go in from, you could have two great days and then the third day is just a nightmare and you can't get any usable footage from that. So independent film distribution is a very contentious subject across the indie film community. There have been a lot of companies that uh, functioned as aggregators. Basically, an aggregator is a company that you pay and then there are certain platforms that they can guarantee they'll put you on. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is that uh, with the exception of Amazon Prime and something like Vimeo or YouTube, uh, you can't just go to iTunes and say, here's my movie. You have to go through a verified third party because... Um, I think the way they describe it, they have the quality control and quality assurance personnel um, and can absorb that opportunity cost to review your materials, make sure that the sound mix is correct, the uh, aspect ratio is, is consistent, is correct. Um, there's no, no digital hits in your video file, like all these things that, that can happen when you're uh, prepping the assets for delivery. Um, so you pay them and they'll get your stuff on, you know, sort of the um, TVOD or transactional VOD platforms like Google Play or, um, you know, YouTube Premium, iTunes, things like that. Um, and they, a lot of them allegedly have relationships with uh, the subscription-based platforms like Hulu and Netflix, Apple TV Plus. So really what you're doing is you are 
paying for the guaranteed delivery to the ones where anyone can ultimately get their stuff on and you're paying for um, your belief that one, your product is of high enough quality that someone would want it on their subscription-based platform uh, and two, that the aggregator you're working with actually has the relationship that they claim to, uh, which is another gamble as well. Um, you know, thankfully you can look up all, all the films that this aggregator worked with, um, or not all, but a lot. Uh, there's a, a lot of public reviews and, you know, feedback that are accessible. Um, but it, when it came time to make a decision in terms of distribution for Mr. Misfortune, I actually almost pulled the trigger on using this one aggregator that um, turned into, it started as a legitimate enterprise and became a fly-by-night thing that just closed their doors overnight, um, filed for bankruptcy, didn't pay filmmakers. So I dodged a huge bullet there financially for myself because it's arguable if there's really a lot of value for a sub $10,000 movie to, you know, go through an aggregator to maybe make it onto Hulu. Uh, you know, I think um, there was a figure, I want to say in 2017 or 2015, there were about 21,000 feature films independently produced in the United States alone. Um, considering the increased uh, access and availability of technology uh, since then, you know, in the five years, uh, you know, uh, after that, I think that you're probably looking at maybe 30,000, with the exception of what happened. I'm sure COVID kind of, you know, everything dipped after that. Everyone was starving for content. Um, but up until that point, and probably, you know, picking up maybe from a lower level, but continuing that that trend, um, we're probably looking at 25 to 30,000 uh, independent features released, or not released, produced every year um, to kind of navigate the signal to noise ratio, uh, especially on platforms like Amazon Prime where literally anyone can upload their, or could, I don't know what their current situation is now. Um, and they were trying to kind of crack down on subpar you know, films and, and series being uploaded. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to, Already, even with professionally produced content, there's a there's an overwhelming amount of options. It's a pretty, I would say, almost oversaturated, um, you know, frontier and landscape. And to get your stuff seen, uh, you have to be a very astute uh, marketer, basically. And so all this ties into Mr. Misfortune, the decisions that I made. Um, when it came time to figure out distribution, I decided to do sort of a hybrid model. Uh, I did the direct to uh, Amazon Prime because I wanted to um, be in full control over when it was available, how um, control the you know different portions of the transactional window because typically you know a new movie will come out maybe it's nine ninety nine to buy um, after six weeks it's four ninety nine then three nine you know you kind of reduce the price to kind of keep it as a, a viable asset or something that someone would consider uh, purchasing after or um, renting or, you know, whatever, after the initial um, marketing push kind of uh, wanes. So 
Um, in addition to that, I also use an aggregator called FilmHub. Uh, what's great about FilmHub is that there's no upfront fee. So unlike the other aggregator that I almost use, it doesn't, they don't charge you per um, pretty much like exhibition platform where it'll land. It's, it's almost like a marketplace that uh, is free to add your content to. They'll review it. I'm sure they have some standards uh, for uh, production values and certainly for technical requirements they do as well. Um, but what they do, the big thing now is uh, these kinds of aggregators will sell in bulk or license in bulk, you know, a bunch of um, like urban crime stuff, neo-noir stuff, dark comedy stuff, light comedy, uh, dramedy, you know. And so your film might get picked up by Tubi, but maybe they picked up 80 or 100 or 1,000 films at the same time for a discounted, you know, rate through something like Film Hub or through another aggregator. Um, and in fact, my film was picked up by Tubi, and that's where uh, most of the interaction comes from. Um, Prime started to uh, make decisions based on some uh, analytics data that they had about what was performing. So even if you said, I want to make my film free on Prime, they start to go through and take down from the subscription part of Prime Video uh, indie filmmaking, indie, indie films from people of all different levels, um, including people that have big audiences and got you know thousands of reviews and things like that because they're astute marketers. Uh, the performance, you know, didn't the, the film didn't have a name and over time. I think maybe the completion rate dropped off. Maybe who knows? It's all speculation. I'm sure they have their calculations they make, but uh, they kind of gutted themselves as an opportunity for indie filmmakers to have a guaranteed place where, uh, you know, with an Amazon Prime subscription, you can make your film accessible. Uh, so that was like the first and foremost objective was to, uh, well, I guess one, complete the film, but also make it available um, because that's what I promised myself. That's what I promised to the cast because a lot of them have made 10, 20 films and the director disappears uh, someone, you know, loses the hard drives, there are legal issues, like all these things that, that prevent the release. So I wanted to make sure that people that were willing to take a chance on me as a first-time feature filmmaker were able to see and share, you know, their work. Um, so Film Hub has been a really great partner in that. Uh, they've gotten the film onto... Uh, a couple channels that I wouldn't have access to otherwise, including Tubi. And Tubi has been the one where there's been, I guess, the most interaction with uh, viewers. Um, and it, you know, it does generate a little bit of revenue. Uh, not enough to, to, for like, you know, a break-even scenario, but enough to kind of get a better understanding of what the current business dynamics are. Um, you can kind of assume how many streams you have. You don't have, you're not privy to like very granular analytics on that level. And I did do a marketing push initially, but then you kind of fall into a zone where you realize, you know, I made this, 
I have enough distance to evaluate. This is what it is. This is what I was able to put into it. And then you have to make a decision as to whether or not you want to continue to push that uh, project as a representation of what you can do, or if you want to kind of hunker down and work on the next project. Because especially if you have a day job too, you only have so much time that can be split between what you do to make a living, what you're doing to promote the first film, what you're doing to make the second film, and everything else that's in your life. So at some point, you know, a couple months uh, after the release, I made the conscious decision to just kind of let it drift. And if people stumble upon it, that's great. If not, that's fine, because I think that it represents the best product, the best film I could make at the time. It does not represent the best product that I could make now. Uh, so I'd rather put the energy into uh, creating that and then pushing that, promoting that, and getting as many eyes on something that really speaks to uh, not just a better product, but um, I think there's a clarity in terms of uh, how I would convey ideas, the ideas I want to express. Kind of done, you know, uh, Mr. Misfortune was an exploration of certain things that I was thinking about quite a bit. Um, but as I've grown as a person and has, you know, a lot of time has just elapsed since the production release, uh, you know, I'd rather focus on what's next and what, what the future holds. The script that I'm working on now um, is very different from the first feature that I made and released called Mr. Misfortune. It is in some ways sort of a response to Mr. Misfortune. Mr. Misfortune is a movie that had, um, you know, a majority, virtually only male cast. And it was something that wasn't lost on me. It was something that I wanted to try to address and balance out. So. A lot of the scripts that I've I've written since have had female protagonists uh, trying to incorporate people of all different kinds of identities, backgrounds, and finding ways to um, really just make sure that uh, I don't become one of those directors that makes the same movie in a you know but approaching it from a different angle ten times. I'm talking about a business proposition. Are you interested? I'm still here. Mr. Misfortune, in some ways, was a philosophical exploration of what it feels like to be trapped and what happens when you give up because uh, your perception is that you have no options left. But if you listen to other people, if you are willing to work on yourself and uh, try to help other people in a, a more altruistic way, um, you can learn and grow and get through, you know, a lot of adversity. And that sounds like kind of like sing-songy, whatever. But, you know, I, I really think that uh, perception really defines a lot of what we perceive as, as reality. Max, you're so caught up in what's right that you're not seeing what is. <clears throat> and those things rarely line up. So that was the exploration of, of kind of those concepts and those feelings. And... Uh, you know, told through characters that navigate that situation very poorly, with the exception of one character who is, you know, sort of presented as the antagonist, but he is actually the one who is honest about who he is, 
what he wants, what his expectations are, what the consequences are if he doesn't get what he wants. So in a way, you know, from a uh, identity standpoint, he is actually the only, he's almost a pure character and the other ones are, uh, you know, not being true to themselves. Um, so, you know, it was interesting dealing with those concepts and ideas, but I wanted to make sure that uh, whatever came after that, all subsequent projects, be they, you know, narrative fiction, short fiction, films, uh, would, you know, kind of really just target different concepts, different ideas, um, retaining the same sort of voice. I, I think my worldview is consistent from film to film, uh, which, you know, I think is something that, um, you know, depending on who you are and what your tastes are, might be a good thing. And for others, they don't really, might not, might be challenging to connect with it. Uh, but yeah, so I think, I don't think that all of my, all of my work or all my films will be sort of in conversation with other works, but uh, the work in progress now is specifically an answer to things I noticed about the way I wrote Mr. Misfortune, some writing tics that I identified, um, and just uh, wanting to kind of move in a different direction with different types of characters and explore different themes. In a lot of my films, specifically Natural Causes and Mr. Misfortune, uh, there are characters that sort of represent the darker side of human nature and will conduct themselves in a way that um, really has nothing to do with the law or ethics or morality. Uh, they are sort of um, objective or goal-driven and everything is a means to an end and it doesn't matter who gets hurt in their wake uh, along the way. Um, I think that uh, you have to be careful with those characters because at some point it becomes challenging for the audience to relate to them. So you always want to give them an inner life and give them some sort of, you know, make them multidimensional. You don't want just sort of a cardboard, you know, kind of 40s or 50s style heavy that you look at the guys wearing a fedora like, oh yeah, I know he's you know, leaning out of the shadows, like, okay, this is the killer, whatever. You know, you want to kind of uh, subvert expectations a little bit with that. Um, so actually the script I'm working on now is is a very much a conscious exploration of that and how people are presented and then uh, how, you know, kind of divulging information on a very specific frequency will reframe the context and then paint the character in a light that, um, you know, maybe you uh, didn't expect or maybe you had hoped wouldn't be the true nature, but you had an inkling along the way. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, try in my own style, in my own writing voice, uh, just see if I could really control the tension and the suspense and have it mount but also release it from time to time, incorporate humor. Uh, so the current work is really kind of like a big personal challenge to just take on things that have nothing to do with budget, scope, or cast, or anything like that. But just on the page, 
uh, has to work in a very particular and precise fashion. But the goal really is to uh, make it fun, you know, and, and I find a lot of films now are just kind of like joyless and devoid of any humor or fun. And, you know, obviously, depending on the subject matter, that might be wholly appropriate. Uh, but I think the real challenge that I've kind of given to myself, just even you know, as, as an audience member who likes to watch a lot of movies, uh, I want it to be a fun ride. I want it to be a fun experience. And I think you can deliver scares and, and not jump scares, but things that are conceptually scary and terrifying, but weave in enough humor because if you only have sustained tension or terror or horror uh, without any kind of release of that, then it becomes noise and the audience becomes sort of um, desensitized to the experience. Specifically at the location of the thing that needs to be moved. That guy. Are you sure? Who is he? Maybe you'll meet him in the next life. You might even be pals. For now, I need you to help me move him. We're gonna give him a dignified bon voyage. You gonna kill me? Not if you stick to the plan. Yeah, you know, so my, my impulse really is to incorporate, uh, not really hitmen because I think that's been done to death. And, you know, I'm partially responsible for that in uh, the making of natural causes, but, um, you know, uh, a femme fatale character or someone who is just kind of um, ethically or morally over the line of what a normal person, you know, where a normal person would be on on a, on some kind of scale, uh, whatever normal is or what the average person would be. Um, and I've thought about trying to kind of uh, fight those impulses and those urges and, and write things or make things that are more um, lighthearted and, and broad, um, you know, and just kind of free from murder and crime and, and all those kinds of things. But it, it, I think it just is a matter of taste. And uh, inevitably, I'll, the seed of an idea will pop into my head and it could be the most mundane scenario. And I'll just think, oh, what if there's a ransom or what if there's a killer or what if there's some kind of uh, insurance scheme? You know, a lot of these things are are very, as you can tell, like very kind of film noir-esque. And uh, I just, I love, like I could live in the third man, you know, just as, as a cinematic universe, I would love to just, there's so much to explore in something like that. And actually that movie in particular, I think, uh, is one of the reasons why I, I don't prevent myself from incorporating those things because I feel like uh, Carol Reed and uh, Graham Greene, with the help of Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton and everyone else associated with that production, uh, accomplished something that is kind of miraculous in the tonal balance that they were able to strike, where even from the onset where you see the montage and you see the body floating and you hear Carol Reed's uh, voiceover telling you kind of what the post-war situation is in Vienna, it is so darkly comedic that it, it just sets your expectations and then the movie is fun. And you're talking about a guy who's trying to figure out 
who allegedly killed his best friend. Uh, there are all these, you know, sort of negative uh, forces coming down on the woman that was uh, sort of the partner of, of his best friend and really just a, a hellacious landscape of post-World War II Vienna where the whole city's bombed out. But it is hard to think of a better time at the movies than that, that just blends in humor, uh, character comedy, you know, um, but kind of grounds it in, in these elements that people have to deal with, you know? And so I find, uh, I find it a challenge that I'm willing to take on to try to marry all of those elements together and, and strike, you know, a, a good balance that, that makes for an enjoyable read and then hopefully, you know, an enjoyable watch for the audience. So, you know, I've learned a lot just by virtue of making a film, uh, releasing it, marketing it. And I think that one of the most important things to do is to uh, follow through and to, you know, if you make something and it's terrible and you don't want anyone to see it, that's fine. But if you make something and a lot of people dedicate their time and talent to it, you really should try to get yourself to a place where you're comfortable releasing it, regardless of how it comes out. Uh, I also think that a lot of people kind of have a vision of what it takes to make a film that is more complicated than reality. You need to break it down and, you know, think about it from the perspective of you are setting out to capture images and sound that when juxtaposed, create a shot, a scene, a sequence in a film, and just kind of think about like the smallest unit of what is in what your film is, right? And if you are not confident that you can get the smallest unit, then just go out and do it. Don't even think about it. Go shoot something, right? And this is where the kind of somewhat controversial just pick up a phone and go shoot something comes in. If you are worried that you're gonna lose all your money on, on this investment and you're not sure, you think maybe there's some growing pains to go through to figure out the technical aspects of it, uh, do something that's no stakes. Like find a friend uh, or you know a roommate or whatever and write a one page scene, shoot it on your phone bring it into your computer or edit it on, you know, whatever device is available and then see if you can get it to a place where you're comfortable releasing it or um, at the very least, you know, expanding on the initial idea. So next time go out and do the five page version of it or the 10 page. I think in terms of shorts, you have to be careful because there's a limited uh, attention span. I don't know what the current statistic is, but the last I heard, I think six minutes is really kind of pushing it. So uh, depending on the nature of, of what you're making, uh, you really wanna be mindful. You wanna like get in, present your ideas as best you can and get out, leave them wanting more. Don't worry about filling in all the gaps. Don't worry about filling in characters' backstory and all this stuff. You want to cultivate a moment, a cinematic moment in your short. Um, it can be one scene. It can be, you know, barely that. It can be a couple shots that make the viewer think about things. 
made the payments on time? Technically, yes. But what I received was less than the discussed amount. It was the discussed amount when it left this bar in your guy's hands. So if there's a problem, you need to go have a conversation with him. But I'm here having a conversation with you. I think when you're ready to graduate to feature filmmaking, you need to never take yourself too seriously, but take the work very seriously and really put a lot of thought into what you're trying to say and why. Um, I've seen a lot of films made where there are uh, pretty good production values, pretty good performances, like some good aspects of the script, but uh, you know, you went, you walk away from the viewing experience questioning why did someone think it was worthy of putting all that time, effort, and money into this? You know, and sometimes, you know, it comes down to taste. And for someone, that could be the best movie they've ever seen. But I think if you want to make film as art, then make whatever you want. If you want to make film as uh, a means of you know, storytelling through the cinematic language, but also as a bridge to uh, some kind of professional venture, then you really have to try to be, one, realistic about what you're able to accomplish with the goals that you have, but maybe push it by 5%, uh, depending on where you land, if you're an optimist or a pessimist or a realist. Um, if you're an optimist, maybe scale it back a little bit. Maybe be prepared for, I might not be able to get everything I want. This is how I'm going to fix it if I don't. Uh, if you're a pessimist, um, you know, it's great to be uh, cautious, but you should be cautiously optimistic and really try to push yourself to uh, be a little bit more aggressive in what you capture and how, and you will surprise yourself in what people will help you figure out how to do um, and what uh, you'll be able to pull off with any number of resources. So I would say push for rehearsals, push to get shots that are a little bit more complicated or involved than you think you can get. And when you're casting, there's a saying, hire quickly, fire quickly. And you really want to make sure that the people on your, and that could be for any, any crew member as well. If something feels like it's not clicking and the dynamic isn't really there, or um, even if the performances are good, but if there's an element that poses uh, challenges that are um, jeopardizing your ability to make your day or to get through the entire production, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to lose a day or two than to lose the film. Uh, and I think the last thing that I would say is that um, as a director, you are the protector of the tone. Uh, you need to make sure that you could have 10 brilliant actors that are at the top of their game giving the best performance of their, of their lives, but you need to make sure that they're in the same movie. You need to make sure that they understand what the sense of humor is. Is it, is it uh, played straight? Is it dry? Is it over the top? Is it, are, are you presenting a stylized world that is not meant to be naturalistic? If so, then someone who's kind of mumbling and talking under their breath, as someone might in reality, like that might not gel with someone who's flailing their arms and 
you know, doing kind of um, uh, ridiculous things and, and using, uh, you know, giving line reads that don't register as naturalistic. So, you know, you really have to kind of figure out how to generate and sustain really what is uh, cinematic alchemy to come out with a movie that, you know, is miraculous in that it was ever made, uh, but also that functions as best as it can.